0: In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Blessed Father, we are grateful to be called your sons and daughters and wish to ever conform our lives to the law and doctrine you have laid down for the glory of your name and the good of our hearts, minds, and souls, and all the people of this earth. Therefore, firm up our minds and keep us ever in peace, and we give you blessing and glory for this beautiful day which you have granted to us in your providence. Our Father, who art in in heaven, heaven, hallowed hallowed be thy thy name. name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. John David Roof and Isaac Yogs and companions, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening to all, and thank you for being here. It is session two of our fall semester of adult faith formation on the social doctrine of the church. Last week, we covered the divine law, right? The authority of blessed God, who made all things to govern according to His purposes. How divine law is understood through the positive divine law, commands God gives directly, through revelation and the teachings of the church, and divine natural law, what every human being is open to know through their examination of the created world. We prefaced with divine law, which is not always the most romantic the subject because that's an important building block. Our next step is conscience what conscience is and how it operates. This is sometimes a controverted issue. This is something, that word has been rather misused. If any of you paid attention to the preaching of Bishop Robert Morlino, he hammered away at this over and over and over again. So let's root conscience first. We try to root everything in scriptural understandings. So a little reference back to the authority of the divine law. I want to go to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 18, starting on verse 33 through verse 38. You'll recognize it rather quickly. John 18, 33 through 38. Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew, your own nation? And the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight. That I might not be handed over to the Jews, but my kingship is not from this world. I'm going to pause right there because you're starting to see now the interplay of divine law with conscience. You say this yourself, or do others say it about is this coming from within you, or is it informed, all right? Is this a decision you have made in conscience, or are you still informing your intellect, the way you know things, all right? Well, Cyber, that's why I want to introduce these two terms: intellect and will. We're getting a little ahead to our Christian anthropology talk, but it's understood that there is a faculty by which the human person makes choices. The faculty by which they know something, that's your intellect. Your intellect is how you know something, and then your will, the choosing of it. Right? Now we know in moral choices there can be a split in those things. I know what a double butter cheeseburger is. I know its effects on me. I know that I had one for lunch, and I shouldn't have one for dinner. <laughs> but then my will has to make a choice, right? So we can choose according. So intellect and will. Mm-hmm. Conscience, literally, conciencia, with knowledge, right? Conscious is understood as that faculty that informs your intellect and your will to the good. I'll give you, we'll get to the catechism in a minute. So I'll give you the catechism quotations, right? So you know things in your intellect, you choose things through your will. So we see Pilate here. Christ is getting into his intellect and will, and then see. Pontius Pilate is trying to subjectivize everything. Remember last we talked about objective, the thing as it is. Subjective, the way that I experience it. Right? Christ is trying to create an objective idea in Pilate's intellect. And Pilate is trying to radically subject. I'm not a Jew. You people are into all this. That's your business. What you do? And Christ immediately goes back to objective my kingdom is not of this world. Okay. We return starting in verse 37. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Right. So you make an objective claim. Christ rejoins. Christ Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. One of the most fa- I find this is one of the most fascinating passages in Scripture. And Commentators have spilt a lot of ink on this because there's not... Ancient Greek doesn't have, like, periods and question marks and exclamation points. So I, I was like, is it like, you say I'm a king? You say I'm a king? You say I'm a king. So it's, like, interesting. We don't quite know exactly how our Lord conveyed that. But he's saying, okay, one thing we can be sure of You have declared objective reality. I'm a king. For this I was born. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This is one of the singularly most radical claims of Christ. For this... Weren't you born into the world to save us from sin? Right. Oh, then you remember St. Paul. This is truth. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, right? So that, yes, yeah, sir. That we needed salvation is truth. But for this, I was born toward to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Right. This is the absolute radical claim of divine authority. I am God, kingdom, not of this earth. You have a dim recognition of it. The reality of my kingship is over your heart and your mind and your soul. And then this goes back to all kinds of things, right? John 14, 6, the most famous one. Where I'm going, you know the way. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. me. You get that to Jesus, right? Radical claims, right? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You heard it was said, you shall not, whatever, kill. But I say to you, like claiming... He's claiming authority even over divine revelation itself. And the only person who can legitimately claim authority over divine revelation is the divinity. Right. This is the utter claim of Christ over the conscience. And then, of course, the last verse, verse 38, the famous one, the great uh, rejoinder of agnostics all over the of history. Pilate said to him, what is true? So now you have the contest, the authority of the kingship of Christ fundamentally over your soul, and your heart, and your mind. Right. So we, again, the rejoinder that Christ is not a geopolitical king. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. God, what's God's? My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, etc. Right. So that ultimate authority of Christ over the truth. And not simply over the truth, but that He is truth. The fundamental role of, you, of those who love Christ is to hear the truth, right? Is the obedience of faith, right? That St. Paul in Romans instituted apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, the reign of Christ over all hearts. Now, of course, we realize there's an operative function within us and with others. How do we assess our own moral acts according to the law of Christ? We'll talk about that more specifically in a minute. How do we assess the moral acts of others? Right, so this is St. Paul. This is, this is the essential da, biblical passage from where the church's te- teaching on conscience comes from. This is Romans chapter 2. We're going to start on verse 12 and go through verse 16. Really, you can go from 1 through 16, but that's a very long. I would encourage you to read Romans 2, 1 through 16, but for our purposes, we'll shorten the passage a little bit. Verse 12. Romans 2, 12. All who have sinned without the law, right? All who have sinned without the law will also perish Without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Alright? See where we're going here? There's those outside the law. They don't have the obedience of faith. But they can sin outside the law. There are those who have the obedience of faith who can sin right under the law. And all who have sinned... For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. We understand that, right? to do it. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. Where while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's break that apart. Those who don't have the law are by nature but do by nature what the law requires, right? Divine natural law. They do what the law requires. They're a law unto themselves, even they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. This is the fundamental invitation to salvation through obedience to the law that is written on your heart. You have to do. Every human being is duty-bound to do what they think is right. right? Now, it bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them, right? Because this is the fundamental evangelical option. Can a uh, good-hearted Buddhist obey the law written on his heart. Yeah, yes, absolutely he can. He can act according to his conscience. He can do what he thinks is right. What happens when he does, does what he knows is wrong? What happens when that good, pious, believing Buddhist lies, steals, whatever, right? What happens then? This is the fundamental, this is the essential call to the gospel witness Last Bible passage before we get into the Catechism, right? This is First John chapter 3, starting on verse 19, all right, First John chapter 3, starting on verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive Him for whatever we ask, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. So, what are we all putting together? The authority of Christ over the truth as such the fundamental reality of St. Paul preaching the gospel, that there is a conscience, there is the divine natural law, the law, that's what he's saying politically, the law written on their hearts. That's what he's talking about, what they believe and here to be right. They don't accept Christ. They don't have the faith. But they do what they think is right according to their house. However, those thoughts can accuse or excuse them. And we'll talk about erroneous conscience and what that means. That's what he's talking about. It's because they've got an erroneous conscience Will that excuse them or will it accuse them? Because the only freedom for us all is God who is greater than our hearts. And we have access to this by keeping His command, which is to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Right? This is Christ in the, in, in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 16, right? And this is eternal life to know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Is this making sense? The authority of Christ and then how it interfaces with an individual person. And conscience, explicated in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, it's not the only place, it's in Galatians, it's in Titus, so on and so forth, but that's the heart of the matter right there, is in Romans 2. Those Gentiles can be saved by obeying the law written on their hearts, but the law of their hearts might accuse or excuse them when they're judged by Christ. Every human soul that dies will be judged by Christ. All. And if they have the law and the obedience of faith, guess what? You're judged by the law of the gospel. If you don't have the law of the gospel, you're judged by your conscience. So let's get into conscience a little bit, because we want to be good with our next 15 minutes. Now, conscience is addressed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, starting on paragraph 17, Seventy-six, isn't that nice? Right, seventeen seventy-six. Independence, your conscience is freedom. Right, seventeen seventy-six, all the way through eighteen o two. So I'm not going to read every last paragraph; that's too time-consuming. But if you want to do the full Monty, seventeen seventy-six to eighteen o two. So seventeen seventy-six is this much quoted and often erroneously used, and we're going to understand how it, what it really means. You will hear all kinds of people, even priests, even bishops, even cardinals, assert a wrong notion of conscience. They say that conscience excuses you from the divine law. That is false. Your conscience may not excuse you from the divine law. And we're going to show how. And they'll say all kinds of nonsense. That the Second Vatican Council taught me that I don't have to obey the Bible. I don't have to obey the teachings of the church. I obey my own conscience, right? Jiminy Cricket had it right all along. False, right? Jiminy Cricket is right that you should always let your conscience be your guide. In fact, it's not really possible to do anything else. But he is dead wrong if you read the rest of the song. What he says should inform your conscience. Let's get into it. This comes from the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world called Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 16. <clears throat> Deep within his conscience, the human person discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey, right? Deep, a law you haven't laid on yourself, but you have to obey. Its voice Ever calling them to love, to do what is good, and to avoid evil, sounds in his heart at the right moment. Right? Let's just stop there. Like, what is this? It's what we call in common parlance, the angel and the devil on my shoulder. Right? There is something deep in your heart that at the right moment calls you to the good. For the human person has in their heart a law inscribed by God. Conscience is their most secret core and sanctuary. There they are alone with God, whose voice echoes in the depths. So conscience is fundamentally your hearkening to the voice of God. Now remember this, right? That hark, and this is where conscience is the high moral call. The passage from two Sundays ago from the gospel, right? The man who comes up, teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. These I've done. What else do I lack? That's just his conscience talking. Yes, I know the law. What else do I lack? There's a higher call. There's something that I've run up to, something in me that has called me to come up to you. And you gave me what I already know, right? I went to this great world-class professor and he gave me, you know, morality 102. I already know that. See, conscience is calling him higher. They're in the secret depth of his core. God's voice echoes, right? Can God's voice be divided against God? That is an insane proposition. People will try to use this and create a division in God. This is why it is my, this is now my opinion. To assert conscience as contra God's law or as a different, like you have a different law than everyone else does is blasphemy because it is creating a division within God. So we move on to 1777. I'm going to read that entire paragraph, 1777. Now, 1777, I'm not going to... It has quotes from Gaudium et Spes, Romans 2, and Romans 1. I'm not going to give all the citations by saying this paragraph has all that woven in together. Moral conscience present at the heart of the person enjoins him at the appropriate moment to do good and avoid evil. That's what your conscience does. Do good, avoid evil. It also judges particular choices, approving those that are good, denouncing those that are evil. And this is the home run passage that should be deeply understood. It bears witness to the authority of truth in reference to the supreme good to which the human person is drawn. It welcomes the commandments. When he listens to his conscience, the prudent man can hear God speaking. It bears witness. Conscience bears witness to the authority of truth and the commandments of God. That's what your conscience does. That's what it's supposed to <laughs> To do. To, what, is, what did God put this, right? And hope that makes sense to you that force, right, that says, I've got to do the right thing here. That's your conscience hearkening to the higher good. And once again, this is so unbelievably evangelical. That's why the gospel, we can say, is not a sort of Western religion. The gospel is for all persons. Every human being has that thing in them that wants to hear the truth and do good. Yes, it can be corrupted and degraded. We'll talk about that in a minute. It can't, like anything, can be corrupted and degraded. It can, but that's what it wants. So conscience, moving to 1778. Conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he's going to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already completed. It's the way you recognize the moral character of your actions. That's what your conscience does. Recognizes the moral conscience. Now, moving forward to 1780. The dignity, the dignity of the human person implies and requires uprightness of moral conscience, right? Hopefully we're starting to see that conscience is that thing that is supposed to unify the human family, not say, I get to do whatever I want. Because if conscience is, I get to do whatever I want, that's the utter breakdown of the human family. And it's not the call of the human person to God, it's the call of the human person to the self. So the dignity of the human person And again, I think this is important to understand. This is where the evangelical witness becomes so strong. We want to get people to know Christ as the King of all truth because that will not only preserve, but heighten, sanctify their human dignity because the upright of their moral conscience is the height of human dignity. Conscience includes the perception of the principles of morality, Their applications in given circumstances, we get all that. Final judgment about concrete acts yet to be performed, right? This is the truth about the moral good stated in the law of reason, right? The law of reason, I'm using my mind to understand what's good or not. Should I steal that thing? Should I lie to that person? It's whatever. The truth about the moral good stated in the law of reason is recognized. Practically and concretely by the prudent judgment of conscience. We call that person prudent, who chooses in conformity with the judgment of conscience. The prudent person obeys their call to the high good. Now we get into some of the practical. That's what conscience is and what it's for. Call you to the high good. It helps you know what the moral good is. That's how you know it. So, what are we supposed to do with this operation, right? Because conscience is like everything. My intellect, all right? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to learn rather than not learn? If I have the capacity of intellect, why am I duty bound by God to form my intellect to the greatest ability that I can? Because one of the greatest ways are the image and likeness of God. I cannot be an intellectual couch potato. Thank God that St. Paul says people who do athletics things are nice. I run the spiritual race because otherwise I'd be in real trouble. But again, in my own examination of conscience, if the, the body is the temple of God, I shouldn't just be able to do whatever I want with my body. Lay on the couch all day, etc. Right? We call that sauce because that's a faculty of our created self that we're not using. Right? Intellect is like this, etc. Conscience is like this as well. The power by which we recognize the moral good. You might even say, there's no singularly more important thing we need to form than our conscience. Because if this is the thing that tells me what's morally good or not, well, I want to get that right. Because right? What, what if I think what's morally good is actually morally evil? Here's one of the greatest testimonies. right? Do you think all of those people at the Nuremberg rallies knew they were doing evil? Some of them probably did and just went along with the crowd. I'm sure that happened. I bet a lot of them believed, this guy's awesome. What this guy wants to do is awesome. The Aztecs, right? The whole, and their central capital, right? You can go to Mexico City now. Tenochtitlan, right? The capital city and see the Temple of the Moon and the Temple of the Sun. They are wonders of the world and they are awesome to see. And especially, wow, they built these things in the 1200s. Unbelievable. And what were these things for? Endless human sacrifice. And why did they do it? Because their religion taught them if they didn't do these human sacrifices, the world would end. So here's a very practical reason why you want to get conscience right. Otherwise, you've got a whole civilizational structure whose foundation of its existence is built on conquering neighboring tribes. So you can have enough people to sacrifice or else the world will end. So not to be too rat but I'm like, this is why getting conscience right super matters. And it matters even more in the individual. All right. A well-formed, this is 1783. A well-formed conscience is upright and truthful. It formulates its judgments according to reason in conformity with the true good willed by the wisdom of the creator. Hopefully that's understandable. Everyone who listens to the truth hears my voice. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Okay. 1784, the education of conscience is a lifelong task. Education of conscience is a lifelong task. I never have it all figured out. I like Saint Josemaria on this point. He says, "Look." When you get past 40, just lop the second number off your age, and that'll give you the right spiritual orientation, and it will save you becoming that cranky old man sitting on his chair, right? So don't say, I'm 50, say I'm 5. I know some things, but i got a lot to figure it out. Don't say, I'm 60, say I'm 6. Don't say, I'm 70, say I'm 7. Don't say say, I'm 8. Yes, my bones creak a little more, and I know more than a 5-year-old, but I still have things to learn, right? that's an excellent spiritual perspective formation of conscience is a lifelong task cuz we can know more and i think the reason why formation of conscience is a lifelong task is have you ever met people they're super the same and super different and all your life you're going to encounter people with a different situation a different circumstance because if the uprightness of conscience cuz like if your conscience hearkens to faith in Christ and it hearkens to things like bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you. Someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other as well. What good is it if you do good to those who are good to you? Even the pagans do that. Right? that high, that's hard. That's a super lifelong task because you've met people. They can really grind your gears and so on and so forth. Right? Lifelong task. 1785. The formation of conscience, or excuse me, in the formation of conscience, the Word of God is the light for our path. The Word of God is the light for our path. It shows us the way, it gives light to all of the situations along the way. So, how do we form our consciences? The goodwill by the wisdom of the Creator, divine law. Right, divine positive law, divine moral law. It's a lifelong task. More for me to learn. More experiences for me to have. The word of God is its light. Because as you know, things can get turbulent. Things can get confusing. What do I do? I don't know. That can happen. The word of God is a light for our path. Right? Now, the next few are going to be little passages on how to choose with conscience. Okay. Faced with a moral choice. Faced with a moral choice. Conscience can either make a right judgment in accord with reason and the divine law. right? No, that's the way it's worded exactly. This is essential church. A right judgment in accord with reason and the divine law. Or, on the contrary, erroneous judgment that departs from them. There's a right conscience, reason in the divine law, erroneous conscience that departs from that. So now let's understand that. You can have a right conscience or an erroneous conscience. 1787. People sometimes are confronted by situations that make moral judgments less assured and decision difficult. Ever had that experience? My moral character is less assured and is difficult. But, they must always seriously seek what is right and good, and discern the will of God expressed in the divine law. Again, so this is that essential to go back to Gaudium et Spes. There, he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. So, the voice of God echoing in your depth—you know how do you know it's the real voice of God if it is expressed? In the divine law. Lastly, to this purpose, man strives to interpret the data of experience. You can tell theological nerds wrote this, right? The data of experience. That's how you thought about the choice you made this morning, right? I have appropriated the data of experience and decided this, right? So, but that's what happens. That is what goes on. You interpret the data of experience and the signs of the times, assisted by the virtue of prudence. By the advice of competent people and by the help of the Holy Spirit and His gifts. That makes sense, right? What's this that's happening? What's going on around me? What do people who are knowledgeable about this topic have to say about this decision? COVID, anyone? You see where this gets really hairy all of a sudden, all right? And the help of the Holy Spirit and His gifts. Some rules apply in every case. This is essentially important. Rules that apply in every case. A. One may never do evil so that good may result of it. Okay? One may never do evil so that good may result of it. Does that make sense? Can't do bad things. Two wrongs, don't make a right, etc. Whatever you wish that you people would do to you, so do to them. Alright? Don't make a choice that you would object if someone made it to you. Third, Charity always proceeds by way of respect for one's neighbor and their conscience. Uh-oh, that person also has a conscience. Right? So charity is by respect for the other person and their conscience. And then it gives a quotation from uh, Gaudium Ispe- Is this right? No. Where is this quotation from? Ah, this is 1 Corinthians 8.12 that they're going to quote now. 1 Corinthians 8.12 Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore it is right not to do anything that makes your brother stumble. Right? This is now St. Paul. To the weak I became weak for the sake of the weak. Because right? then we're going to move into erroneous conscience. Because the people in this room are going to try to strive to, right, I don't think we have people here saying, no, I don't have to obey the divine law. I think it's important if you have, meets someone who says, well, the Second Vatican Council says, I don't have to obey the law. False, right? And then you go right to these quotations from the catechism. Well you might not say false, because that's a bit rude. You might say, I don't think so. Let's have coffee, and I'll bring my catechism. And you say it nicely and politely. So let me take you golfing. Have a cigar. By the way, your conscience talk is nonsense, okay? This... Mm -hmm. but there are people right conscience can be wrong so that gets the last section on conscience and the title for this section is erroneous judgment 1790 a human being must always obey the certain judgment of his conscience right got to do what you think is right if he were deliberately to act against it he would condemn himself I think that was clear in St. Paul right right you have to do what you think is right. If you violate what you think is right, you, do, you sin, whether you're a Christian or not. If you do... This is the catechism definition of a sin. If you ask a second grader to sign, tell me, little Joey, what is a sin? Sin is doing something you know is wrong. Right? Acting against con- conscience tells you it's, this is the right thing to do. You don't do it. Conscience tells you that's the wrong thing to do. You do do it. Okay. So, it can happen that... If he deliberately acts against it, condemn himself. Right? Obviously. Yet it can happen that moral conscience remains in ignorance and makes erroneous judgments about acts to be performed or already committed. That makes sense, right? They don't know. Ignorance is not knowing. Again, please understand that when the, we tend to think of ignorance as equi, equivocal to stupidity, it's not. In common parlance, that person's ignorant means that person is stupid. No. Ignorant just means they don't know, which is very understandable. Now it says, this ignorance can often be imputed to personal responsibility. Uh Uh-oh, yes, that can happen. Your ignorance is your own fault a little bit. Thus, this is the case when a man takes little trouble to find out what is true and good, or when conscience is by degrees almost blinded through the habit of committing committing sins. Right? In such cases, the person is culpable for the evil acts he commits. Okay? If someone is ignorant because they make little effort to know the good, or they are so blinded by evil habits, right? they are, then your ignorance is culpable. You are responsible for it. It's your fault. you I mean, their fault, right? Then it gets onto something that is reflective for believing Christians, and I think is will recognize the truth of it. Ignorance of Christ and his gospel, bad example given by others, enslavement to one's passions, assertion of a mistaken notion of autonomy of conscience, rejection of the church's teaching authority. Lack of conversion and of charity. These can be at the source of errors of judgment in moral conduct. Right? I think that makes sense, right? So how can we make mistakes of judgment in moral conduct? Ignorance of Christ gospel. We don't know what the divine law even is. Bad example given by others. Right? We know this. This is where family life is so important. Why do a lot of vicious habits tend to project generation after generation? Because the fundamental example you got was bad. Assertion of a mistaken notion of autonomy of conscience, right? Conscience is, I get to be God. So it's not me listening to God's voice, it's me being God and saying, right? This is the fundamental temptation of the serpent. No, God knows, well, you will... That you will be like God's, calling what is good and what is evil, right? You corrupt your own conscience. I don't hearken to divine law. I hearken to my I don't listen to God's voice. My voice is God's voice. Rejection of the church's authority and her teaching. Yep. Right. You know this is right, 1 Timothy 4. You know how to behave in the household of God which is the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Right? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The church is the pillar of Jesus Christ. So you have to hearken to our teachings. If you don't, you could get erroneous authority. Right? And then lack of conversion and of charity. Right? It's a big one for clerics. It's a big, big, big one for clerics. I've gone through the seminary and put on my cassock. Good to go. And I can start to have an erroneous conscience. I excuse myself because I don't want to convert more deeply. I'm not deepening my charity. I don't think only clerics are the ones who do that. All right. But I would say that's a very grave one in clerical life. A lot of times, you know, you'll find this among a certain group of Christians who didn't... You, know, you get to say, well... I now know the teachings of Christ. I am orthodox. I believe what the church teaches. But I don't open myself to ongoing conversion. What are my root vices? What are my bad habits? So on and so forth. And so I start to make a lot of erroneous judgments that I excuse. Because I'm not open to more conversion. So these are all the ways. You don't don't even try to know what's good. You'll get judged for that. You just covered over in endless bad habits, you will get judged for that. And you reject, you can have it, you see bad example, right? These things are tough. So it moves on. If, on the contrary, the ignorance is invincible, all right, so they use that phrase, right? There's ignorance and invincible ignorance. Ignorance is you don't know, but you could. Right? It might be harder for you, right? depending on your circumstances, different. You don't know what's good, but you could. Invincible ignorance is you can't know what's right, right. If, on the contrary, the ignorance is invincible, or the moral subject is not responsible for his erroneous judgment, the evil committed by the person cannot be imputed to him. It remains no less an evil, a privation, or a disorder. And so one must work to correct the errors of moral conscience. The Aztec Empire is a perfect example. A lot of people who are in perfect, invincible ignorance. A lot of people there who are just, this is the whole world that I've lived in. This is what they always teach me. This is what everybody does. I firmly and truly believe That if we don't maintain these sacrifices, the world will end. It's an offense against the gods. They'll bring about the end of the world. Therefore, I, with great love in my heart, go and do this thing. That is, they still do evil. They're doing grave evil, but they're not responsible for it. Does that make sense? Because they can't know that it's any different. So, this becomes really at the heart of the gospel of mercy. This is at the heart of when Jesus Christ says, Judge not that you may not be judged. That's what St. Paul is saying. It is not right to do something that makes your brother stumble. To put their conscience in error or wound their conscience. So when I see someone doing something that is objectively wrong, I should have the heart of charity that says there's an error in their conscience. Now, their error in their conscience, here's what I'm going to opine now, and then we'll open up to questions, all right? because I'll make this last quotation. A good and pure conscience is enlightened by true faith, and charity proceeding from that true and sincere faith. So, my real desire is to generate. Faith in that person. It could be a faithful person who just doesn't know. And I have to teach them. And and you've met like that. People didn't know. You teach them the right thing. Oh, gosh, I didn't know that. I'll go. But a lot of times it's to generate within them true and sincere faith. That they will enthrone Christ as the Lord of truth in their hearts. And live their life according to that truth. Okay. I'm gonna get sermonistic. I wanna leave the last time for questions, right? Any questions about what I've said or what we have read? Molly.
1: What if the conscience is altered or not in their right mind, such as in
0: addiction? So addiction, psychosis, uh, insanity, etc., means fundamentally the person does not have use of the faculty of reason. So really, we would say in addiction, or psychosis, or insanity, the person is not making a... They're not doing a moral act because they can't engage their reason. So they're not culpable. They're not culpable as such. Once again, are they doing something that's objectively evil? Very much probably so. Especially addicts, right? Right, because addicts addicts get into the habituation of sin, right? Because then there's always question, what is their mere behavior, and then what's going on in their own psyche? Once again, this gets to the heart of judge not that you may not be judged, but technically speaking, severe addiction. Again, severe addiction is tricky because, you know, they might not be morally culpable for the last 500 times they've given into their addiction, but they are morally culpable for the first two or three. Right? You'll see this a lot. Someone does a morally evil act, and then their conscience says... They feel bad about it. And the question lies, the two ways to get rid of that bad feeling is either repent and amend or repeat until it doesn't feel so bad anymore. And I think I've seen a lot. I mean, I see that a lot. That also gets into family experience, psychological disposition. Once again, you see how Christ is very wise and judge not that you may not judge. But also, yeah, psychosis and insanity, they're not using the faculty of reason, so they're not making a culpable act. Tracy. Or Carrie, I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) Carrie. In the middle of knowing what to do, not knowing what to do, or knowing good or knowing bad, in the middle is our thought process, our little mini debates or major debates inside our head. Your conscience. Your conscience, but sometimes, you know, conscience has two arguments, you know. It,
0: yes, what's it the way they said it? Uh, the, the good is difficult to know. How did it say it? Moral judgments less assured and decisions difficult.
2: So what state are we in? what state are we in if we're trying to like dis- decide or our conscience doesn't have a like the door number three there right, the right one
0: you don't feel you know it's the right thing to do alright so that can so-, so you don't do something good but maybe you don't do something bad you don't do right, right. So, so what hard. happens what happens when the moral quality of my action is kind of neutral or hard if not impossible to know I can't see all the effects of it. I really don't know what the right thing to do is. Is that kind of what you're getting at? And as I've done my best. I have sought the divine law. I've even had time to consult competent persons. And it is still not clear to me what I should do. All right? That's the heart of, you have to do what you think is right. When you have... Consulted divine law and competent persons and prayed for enlightenment, and you still are not sure of what the right thing to do is, then A, you are free to not act. That's if that's possible. You can't just not say, I don't know what I should do, therefore I'm gonna not take this action. If that's not possible in the given situation, then you have to just do what you think is right. The morality of that will probably be seen once you make the choice. Does that make sense? Because you're right, there are some of those that get like that. I have something to add to that, because mm-hmm.
1: my middle child, who is almost 12, she asks that all the time. And she kind of tends to go more towards, like, bad. And so I'll tell her when she asks me something like that, and she literally doesn't know. I'll just say, well, think about it. Are you pissing off the double? the devil?"
0: Or are you making Jesus proud? Yeah, so for children it's yeah. yeah. For children it is about the for children it's super about the formation of conscience. Yeah. And so conveying it in a way that they can understand. Do they know what the moral law is? Yeah. So when you say are you making Jesus happy, are you giving do they have a reference point like do you right. know what the Ten Commandments say? Do you know what the golden rule yeah. says? And if they do and are conflicted, then I think it can be a Anecdotal thing like you're saying.
1: Yeah, it works really good for her. It works really good for me too. <laughs> I know this. I had
0: this when I was in a first associate pastor, I'd have father's question box for the high school kids, and it definitely got into thing, is it a sin to wear a bikini? Is it a sin to play Grand Theft Auto too? And so, and I said, How about we just do this first? You can ask all your questions. I'm not saying you can't ask a question, but think to yourself, will this please God? And bring me closer to holiness. To wear a bikini, to break it. You start asking that question in that key. All of a sudden, a lot of things start answering themselves. And hopefully, it will press you to inform your conscience. I have a sentiment in the deep of myself that will not make Jesus happy and bring me closer to God to play Grand Theft Auto or whatever. But I can't really explain it. Well, that's why you get information of moral conscience. So I think that gets to what you're... If we can frame the question, instead of what's a sin and how to avoid it, what glorifies God and how do I get there?
3: Jesus said, unless you become like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Doesn't mm-hmm. that speak to the natural law written on the hearts of us as Absolutely.
0: As absolutely right. We see, right? Most kids learn to do evil by observing evil. Right. Yes, absolutely. Just listen to what's right and good in your heart, try to, you know, so on and, and so forth. our progression in life, these are
3: either, leads us to the proper formation of a, of a conscience or away
0: from it. Um, yes. By our actions. And by actions. your studies and your experiences and your choices, you're either, yeah, forming your conscience in a more good and upright way or in a more erroneous way. Right. Fundamentally, so yeah. We don't
3: need to be intellectuals Understand and have a
0: good conscience. That's true. You don't have to be a PhD to be good and listen to your conscience. So I'm just trying to understand the conscience
1: is the knowledge of divine law written by the finger of God in the
3: hearts of men. Does that manifest itself through the Holy Spirit? Is
0: no. All right. Conscience is a judgment of reason. Whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act. So
1: how does one make that decision when everyone has so many different opinions?
0: Well, once again, the question is not "is what is my opinion." The question is, what informs my opinion? Right. And that would be the divine law. The divine law, human experiences, the law written on your heart, right? That's a upright conscience. We covered all the ways people can have erroneous consciences, right? So people can have a variety of, of opinions because of ignorance of the gospel, bad example by others, enslavement to your own passions, assertions of a mistaken north and authority, rejection of church teaching, lack of conversion, etc. Right? These all these things lead to varieties of opinions on moral acts. So the it uh, is of Christ and bad example given by others, that's affecting the conscience of a lot of people, right? Their consciences are formed mostly by what they see on television and the internet and so forth. So the, I think that's addressing what you're trying to say. So the divine law, I think you said that was the that was Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes? Divine law is the like if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other, that's divine law. Bless those who curse you, that's divine law. Right? Because God said this, Jesus Christ is God, He said this. Do it. In addition, yes, the Beatitudes are divine, the Ten Commandments are divine law, so on and so forth. The golden rule is divine law. And then also Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. Right, all those things I just said to you are Jesus quotes from the Gospel, yes. Right? All who hear the truth hear my voice. That's Christ. That's the, L, right? Clearly, if someone strikes you on one cheek, to the other, is an elevation of the conscience. Natural law is probably not going to teach you that.
3: <laughs> you opened the discussion saying that some clerics speak of the conscience erroneously. Is that... By virtue of saying, well, it's up to them and their conscience, is that kind of washing themselves, their hands, of any role in pointing that soul to heaven?
0: Yeah, I, I have the person... Again, this will be my opinion. I think it's an opinion grounded in many facts and experiences and so on and so forth, but it is my opinion. It's my opinion that a clerical excusing of holding people to the divine law became an easy... fact became viewed as the charitable thing to do. Why put this person into a, quote, crisis of conscience? Because what if holding to the divine law is really hard for them? What if holding to the divine law causes them a lot of suffering? What then, right? What if that happens? That can happen. Holding to the divine law can cause you to suffer. That can happen. So what, when that happens, and I observe that person carrying the cross... And my heart naturally bleeds for them. And all of a sudden I think to myself, I'll just take it away. I'll excuse excuse this. I think that's where it comes from. And especially as the wider culture started to depart from the divine law. And even doing what was in 1920 an ordinary thing to do now became an extraordinary thing to do when those cultural buoys fell away. So if you say, there was a lot more bad example given by others. There was a lot more assertion of an assaken authority. There was a lot more rejection of the authority of Christ's teaching that an individual cleric would now start to see it as mercy to give someone an erroneous conscience. Because then at it least it's not hard for them. Does that make sense?
3: It does, but then they're essentially saying instead of causing them hardship in this life, they're going to allow them to suffer that in the next life.
0: Well, it would say, yes, that is the net effect, probably more for that cleric than for that person, um, very likely, if, right? If, if someone comes to me asking whether it's the right thing to do A or B, and I, and I give them an erroneous conscience, that judgment's going to be way worse on me than it is on them because they've, seeked, they've come seeking me as a competent authority. As a competent authority, I've given them erroneous conscience. Well, the, the judgment is going to be way harsher on me than it will be on them. There might still be a judgment because they know what. Right? They might be hoping. I mean, I know people who have come to me hoping against hope that I'll give them a pass. I know that's what they're doing because, right? But they live, yes?
3: I have a question. Back in the, Early 70s. Yes. You would go to confession. Yes. And you would ask them about uh, contraception. Yeah. Some of the clerics would give you a pass on it. Yes.
0: And it happened a passes.
3: lot. So, is that what What would you call that on the cleric's part?
0: I would call that on the cleric's part blasphemy. Because mm-hmm. they, have, they have rejected the imago Dei in that person. As a cleric, I am. I mean, I make formal, out loud. I mean, really said I'm going to obey the church's teaching. You do when you, that's put in you when you're baptized. When you're a cleric, you like triple down on that and make super out loud promises that I'll obey and teach everything the church obeys and teaches. So
3: what about that person that goes into the confessional with the priest
0: that says? Let's say that person goes in. They're hearing all kinds of stuff on TV. Their aunt Sally said this was okay. Their doctor says. It's okay. I don't really think they should be doing it, but everyone seems to say it's okay. I don't really know. I feel bad about it. So I'm going to go to the confessional. And so the person who is the competent authority to teach them when they have all these ideas says, no, of course, you can contracept. Don't worry about that. Well, that person's in erroneous conscience. They're probably moving real close to invincible ignorance. Oh, I thought this might be bad, but it's not. Everyone who might be a competent authority, uh, my doctor and my priest, say it's fine. Now, we would say, well, are you an educated person? What, like, what is the level of your duty to read papal encyclicals? That's, right, that's a hard... Because you can, right? You're literate. It's accessible. You can do it. But is that really the expectation of the lay faithful? No, that's the expectation of the clergy. Essentially. So it gets... Now again, I don't judge a particular case. I'm saying in that instance, I would have to judge that that lay person is in erroneous conscience. But they're not really culpable for it because they probably came with a good heart. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. So I'm going to ask competent authority. And they're right. They went to competent authority and competent authority told them the wrong answer. They're very likely not culpable for the choice. They, If they choose the country, they're likely... Not culpable for it. That's different from someone who says, I don't give a rip what the church says about this. I do what I want. Mm
2: -hmm. Pilate. Right. Is the only person other than Jesus that is in every single
0: mass.
2: Yes. Yes, he is. Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and Pontius Pilate. Yes. So Pontius Pilate did not want to make a decision... He was uncomfortable. He was nervous, or whatever. Yep. He was smart, or he thought he was trying to be smart. Did he? Did he blow it? Did he make a mistake? Or Let me just—I'll
0: just quote the Catechism: When a person takes little trouble to find out what is true and good, or when conscience is by degrees almost blinded to the habit of committing sin, in such cases the person is culpable for the evil he commits. I'd put Pilate right there. This is why being an important, powerful person is terrible, right? Our Lords, to whom much is given, much will be expected. So this is
2: a, that's an example of, of it right right
0: there.: Live and in person. There have been tremendous books written about Pontius Pilate," "The Trial of Jesus of Nazareth and "The History of Western Law." We're, again, we've taken massive departures in the last 30 years from this legal tradition. Uh, the, the legal Western tradition that law is duty-bound to hearken to the good, not to the expedient, not to the efficient, right, to the good. And it's based on that, right, that exact thing. If I am in a powerful and influential person, and I take little trouble to find out what is true or good, or blinded through the habit of committing evil, I can do a whole lot of evil the ordinary person can probably do very little evil. That doesn't excuse them from doing evil, but that's... So yes, and yes, there's, it's not for no reason that Pontius Pilate got jammed into the creed. So Everyone remembers, you are duty-bound to follow your conscience, right? His wife says, have nothing to do with this just man. She gets it. <laughs> and he could have said that. Look, you crazy Jews, do what you want. I'm having nothing to do with this. I don't need this whole mess. Right, men, listen to your wives, right? (laughs) Pontius Pilate's wife is living proof of that. Listen to your wife, you're in a better spot. (laughs) Oh, sure it would have. He could have remanded it. Okay, we can get into that whole theoretic. (laughs) All things are in God's providence, yet Pilate was utterly free, and that he should have listened to his wife is beyond disputation. All right. right. We're five minutes past the hour, but yes.
3: For the average person, what is the process of forming a proper,
0: the average Christian, let's say that, the average Christian's process for forming their conscience well is to read the Word of God consistently, know what's in the Catechism. Of course, life happens, and you should be able to trust your parish priest. You might be, in our own day and age, we're very fortunate, there are educated laypersons more than there ever were before. And so if you happen to be friends with, you know, Dr. John Joy or something like that, he's highly educated. He will also give you the right answer. He, you can, oh, that's a competent authority. But the automatic, the presumed competent authority is your parish priest. Just a quick...
1: So will your will... Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Your yeah. will, my will...
0: I thought you were thinking of a person. Yes, your will. My, the power that you choose, the you used to choose.
1: Correct. But my conscience to, when I decide what my, what the will, you know, I want to make my will be done, not thy will be done. You know, that's, that happens. I think that's sometimes the big question, you know, what is, what's God's will? What I was taught is that my will is always a selfish will, from the very first part of it. When the first things happen in my life, my will takes over. And then I have to stop my, you know, you stop yourself and then you ask, wait a minute, what's God's will? What would God's will be? Because usually at an instantaneous moment of thought, I want to do something.
0: Yes, the it the is. Doubles, the it doubles is devil's
1: sitting on that shoulder and he's going to go, yep. okay, you know, really, you should think about this real quick. and just do it.
0: Because moral teaching is that the, original, the effect of the original sin is the darkening of the intellect. You see what is, but not always so clearly. And the fracturing of the will. Your power to choose is not absolute. Your will can be overcome. Your will can be pointed in a different direction. That's the effect of original sin. This is St. Paul saying, The good that I would do, I do not. And the evil I would not do, I do it. That's what he's talking about.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
0: And again, we've all been there.
1: Well, I think, I mean, it's just the more you study it and the more you experience it, the better you will be at listening to God's words than your own.
0: And maybe if we hold into mind too, right? God is greater than our hearts. Mm -hmm the way that we can seek perfection according to our conscience and not be terrified all the time. You say, oh my gosh, I have to do the good thing all the time. Yes, you do. That's the call to sanctity. But the way that doesn't terrify you is Jesus, right? The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, the greatness of God over your heart is why you're not terrified of your conscience. So that's why I don't have to uh, smother my conscience by doing you. Man, I saw this at the university over and over and over again. Nice church going kids come to the university. What happens the first time they get stinking drunk, the first time they have sex or whatever, and they wake up and feel bad. That's the war for their soul right there. Are they going to repent and amend because God is greater than their... They trust Jesus to be greater than their hearts. Or they're going to be terrified of their conscience and just numb it through repetitive action, right? My foot hurts. Whack it till you can't even feel it anymore. <laughs> right? And you, that's what happens and because we live right this is meant to be our evangelical impulse our impulse to preach Christ and him crucified the power of god and the wisdom of god is because if i have an erroneous conscience and you come at me with right conscientious teachings that's going to the likelihood that i'll reject that is super high cuz you're making me feel bad right that's not awesome Again, prudence, right? Sometimes a peer's conscience is just what they need. I'm not saying never say what's true. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying I think we have this experience that if we lead with conscience bunch of rules, man. But if we lead with Christ and Him crucified, this is the power of God in my life. Once I was a slave, but I'm a slave no longer. Once I feared my own heart. I feared that accusation. You know that little black pit in your soul, dark at night, that points out how bad you are, makes you feel bad about yourself. I know the one who can overcome that. And then they, right? Uh, to quote the Great Commission from tonight Go therefore, notice, right? Go over there and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. I noticed in the life of the church, we kind of weirdly invert that. We baptize them and try to teach them, hoping they'll become disciples. (laughs) What we're really supposed to do is make disciples and baptize them and teach them. So that's, again, please don't misunderstand. It's not like I'm teaching a class for heaven's sake. Teaching, right? But if you look around, and teaching a group of people who are for the most part trying to be active disciples, right? I'll give you that credit here in this room. (laughs) You know there's a whole bunch of people there who are not trying to be active disciples. They need to know the love of Jesus. They need to know the witness of the gospel. They know how, to, how the gospel was impactful in my life. That I didn't become a priest just so I could wear this black dress and live in that house. Because people can think that. But because God was active in my life and Christ... All right, we're getting sermonistic. Sorry, that's not the point of this. <laughs> if people want to stay and talk, you can stay and talk. Otherwise, for those who want to, are already not respectful of time... but.